0: Today's text is from Mark 11, verses 12 through 26. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple And he was teaching them and saying to them is it not written my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations but you have made it a den of robbers and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowds were astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that, What he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses.
1: Good news under Nero, the gospel according to Mark. We haven't been here since November, before we started our Advent series. So it's good to be back in the Gospel of Mark and continue on. The last time that we heard from the Gospel of Mark, if you remember, um, Pastor Williams was here preaching, um, and he was preaching about the triumphal entry, Christ coming into Jerusalem. Now Christ is in Jerusalem, and we find this scene at the temple. So let me ask you a question. What do you think of when you hear the word? Anger. I asked a few people that question to prepare for the sermon to get a little bit of feedback. And I just asked them to put it in one of two general categories bad, good, anger. And maybe, as you might imagine, the reaction from all of them was that anger is a bad thing. It's a habit we're trying to break. We've been told. Uh, from a child that we're not supposed to be angry. And so we generally put the, I, the feeling of anger in a bad category. However, in our passage today, Jesus, our Savior, the Lord of the earth, of heaven and earth, is angry. In fact, he's violently angry. Um, you see him performing a miracle of destruction where he says this fig tree will no longer bear figs. Most of his miracles that we've learned of so far, I would say all of them, are miracles of healing, miracles of giving life to the dead, hearing to the, to the deaf, sight to the blind. But now Jesus is performing a miracle of destruction on this fig tree. He went into the temple, and we read about it here in verses 15 through 19, how he turned tables over and um, drove The money changers out of the temple and he would not allow them to come back and to come through the temple and he was probably yelling when he said my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations but you have made it a den of thieves he's angry now 10 out of 10 moms if they were watching or let's say 9 out of 10 moms just to give that one potential mom would say Jesus stop raising your voice Jesus, you need to give that tree another chance. Jesus, couldn't you find a less insulting way to talk to these people? If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Jesus, there is never an excuse for hitting. Jesus, keep your hands to yourself. Right? That's what, that's what if his mom were there, she might have been tempted to say. And if it were any of us, our moms would have told us to be nice and play nice. But Jesus is angry. So we learn these phrases as a child. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Keep your hands to yourself. All these kind of things. But here we have our Savior, Jesus, not only angry, but acting in a way that if a pastor were to do this, I'm sure would be voted out of his church for, you know, um, behavior unbecoming of the ministry. And here you have Jesus doing it so The question is, since Jesus is God in human flesh and does all things well, there must be something to learn here about anger. So we're going to learn today that there is good news for the angry. Now, before you find this, you will find by the end, this is not going to be an allowance for uh, anger at your children or the type of anger that we usually have. But the subtitle might help us out a little bit, if you could go to the next one, is The Necessity, Goodness, and Application of the Messiah's Anger. The Necessity, Goodness, and Application of the Messiah's Anger. And we're going to look at three, these three points today. I think that this may be a real key to change in your life in 2024. Um, And this, by the way, I will say, is the reason that in our church we preach expositionally and chronologically through the Bible. So chronologically meaning we keep moving and we don't skip over any of it. And expositionally meaning when we get to each passage, we want it to speak to us so that we hear what God would say. Otherwise, we would probably choose the Jesus with the child on his knee Jesus for most sermons if we were just gonna choose the sermon for today. But we're letting God choose the sermons as we're walking through the Gospel of Mark and we wanna hear the whole counsel of God. We wanna know all that God says. And as I say, speak this to you today, I do it with a little bit of fear because as we speak about the wrath of God or the anger of Jesus, we have two big dangers. One is that you will understand that Jesus is angry with you wrongly if he's not or one that you may assume that he's not angry with you when he is and so this is a very delicate issue that we want to hear what God has to say to us so as we read his word and as you think about it with me I want you to critically think through what God's word is saying and not just receive it because somebody is preaching it or saying it that we need to know what is God saying to us so that I can rightly understand. We don't want a Jesus that looks like our Jesus. Otherwise, we just have ourselves mirrored in this person that we're calling Jesus. We want to know who was the Jesus of the Bible who is today on the throne. Who is the lamb who is also a lion? Who is the one who sacrifices himself but also comes in judgment? And where do I stand with this Jesus? And how should I act as a follower of this Jesus? Okay, so the necessity of the Messiah's anger. First of all, anger is one of the five primary emotions. If you've seen Inside Out, you know this is the only animated movie that ever made me cry. Um, If you've not seen it, I would encourage you to see it. It's a powerful animated movie, and there were five main emotions. There were um, joy, fear, sadness, disgust, and anger. And if you've seen that movie, you're going through those little animated characters in each one and what they looked like. Um, One of my favorite Christian psychologists, he takes disgust out of the list and adds four other ones, which are... Um, hurt, loneliness, shame, and guilt. And so everybody would put anger in one of the, categ- one of the few core emotions. As human emotions, I would submit to you that these are part of what it means to be made in the image of God. So as we started this series of Mark, the idea is that following Christ through Mark is a journey of discipleship meaning we are following Jesus and the goal of discipleship or following Jesus is that we get remade in Christ into the image of God. So we have all of these emotions, but they are twisted under the, um, the corrupt power of our sin. God, however, has a perfect godly anger. So, but what is the necessity of anger that we see as a human emotion in us? As a kid growing up, I learned that, I didn't learn these major emotions, but I did learn there's only one emotion that you're allowed to express, which is happiness. All others, sadness, hurt, loneliness, guilt, shame, or anger, are dangerous emotions, and you should not show them. And if you feel them, that is bad. And I think most of us, probably grow up with some sort of feeling, uh, some sort of this idea. However, not only does, do we learn this from God's word, but in our humanity we learn that anger is a necessary emotion. And here are the reasons it's necessary. First of all, anger is an emotion that expresses value. That is to say, behind all anger is a person saying, something important really matters to me. This thing of value is being hurt, neglected, or is in danger. And because of that, anger comes out. Someone who never expresses anger also is not capable of expressing love. You know, for example, I love my wife, I love my daughters, I love my son as well. He's just able to take care of himself a little more. But speaking of the fatherly feeling I have for my daughters and for my wife, if you as a young man were to come into my house and disrespect one of the ladies in my house, you were to come and put your arm around her when she didn't request that and cuddle up next to her when she doesn't want that and when you haven't gained that because you haven't, married one of my daughters, for example, and you could keep going with the illustration that I'm not going to, but you can imagine it keeps getting worse and worse. You're going to see a very angry dad, right? And if you didn't, and I didn't react with anger, there would be a lack of value there. There'd be an inability for me to express love. So love must express itself in this fallen world in anger, Sometimes so it 's a necessary expression of value. I remember as a child that um, you, you may not believe this, but as a middle schooler, I was not very big, and I was getting picked on on the bus, and I remember my sister coming home and telling my dad about that it 's probably by some bully, kind of like this big moppy headed kid over here was picking on me. And I saw you laughing at me and uh, so my sister came home and told my dad about it, and I, for the first time, I saw my dad angry because of the, the type of bullying that was going on on the bus. And he went to this kid's house and talked to his parents and then talked to this kid. And at that moment, I understood something about my value with my dad because of the emotion of anger that he expressed. So anger is a necessary emotion, and so I would ask you today, If you are experiencing anger this week or as a general habit, what what is the value that you're expressing when you're angry? Anger exposes the substance of our heart. It exposes our values. Secondly, anger can be a gift or it can be an impairment. That is, anger is a gift when it is channeled into a life's passion it can be an impairment when it's channeled or bottled up into depression and pride. So anger can be expressed in a healthy way and in a good way. It can also be expressed in ways of of, of discouragement. So imagine in this scene if Jesus seeing the situation in the temple, which we're going to talk about in a second, and he had responded in our human way of just being depressed about it or complaining about it or um, just being judgmental of it in a prideful way. But he took action with his anger. So anger expressed is necessary in order for our anger to be a gift to us and not an impairment. Thirdly, anger is the catalyst to real-life change and impact. That is to say that very passionate people are often, or they are, let's say always, angry people. And you think, And I would tell you that that is, or can be, can be a good thing. Angry people can be known for their unwillingness to hide and their unwillingness to accept things the way they are. So, anger, I would say to you, first of all, is a necessary emotion. So, a God that would have come to us in human form and not be angry with what he saw among us and how we treat each other would not be a redeeming god so god so this is some good things that have come from anger for example the reformation in the 1500s came from a german monk who got angry at the corruption he saw in the church the beginning of wars and the end of wars was because someone finally got angry enough to take action So the second point, and we won't continue belaboring that too much, so the second point is the goodness of the Messiah's anger. And here's the important thing, because if you just heard that anger is necessary and you just excused all of your anger, then you would be missing the holy anger of God or the goodness about the anger of God and you would excuse some very unrighteous anger in yourself. So what is it about the Messiah's anger that was good? Okay, let's look at what it says in verse 17. If you don't have your Bibles with you, I'll put it up here. It says what Jesus said here, and he was teaching them and saying, and this is going to be vital for us to understand why Jesus was angry and why it was good that he was angry. He said this, it is not written, my house shall be called. He said, is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. So this sentence here, or this phrase, these two phrases, is the core of what made Jesus angry and what, we need, what will help us to realize the difference between godly, righteous anger and unrighteous and ungodly anger. I would say this, that the anger of the Messiah... In this case, and I think we're going to see in all other cases in Scripture, has two, different, or two foundational, let's say two objects in mind. So if you go to the next one, the Messiah's anger is anger for, number one, the glory of God, and number two, the good of his people. The glory of God and the good of his people. Think about that phrase that Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. So that is, he was angry that the temple was being defiled. And this is about the glory of God. And then it was supposed to be a place of prayer for all the nations. And we're going to talk about that. But that that was for the good of his people. So let's talk about the first one. So what was happening in the temple? So if, if you would go to the next one here. This is a image a recreation of what would the temple maybe would have looked like back in those days this is herod's temple it was called herod's temple because he finished the temple that they began to build after the um i can't think of the english word the Sibbi. you want to help me out with that the um what exile thank you after the exile they began to build the temple didn't finish it herod the great finished it and it was this magnificent place and so if you see the, the tallest part of that, that's the Holy of Holies. That's the place where only the high priest was allowed in and where he made the sprinkling of the sacrifice once a year for the atonement of the sins of the people. Inside of that building surrounding the tower was what they called the Holy Place, or that was called the, the, um, the Court of Israel, and only Jewish people were allowed in that space. And that space was a place where where any priest that was a priest before God could come and make the sacrifices if they had already atoned for their own sins. And it was a place of meeting with God. It was a place of the message of God's love and forgiveness through sacrifice. Outside of that, in this big area, was called the Court of the Nations. And this place was particularly in the description of the temple that God gave to his people, this was supposed to be a place where all nations of the world could come and get near to his presence and learn about this great God of heaven. The problem was that this whole space was being taken up with two types of people. First of all, there were money changers. Now, the temple tithes had to be given in Jewish, in Hebrew, Jewish shekels. But the Roman Empire was trading in money that had Caesar's name and face on it. And so they would do an exchange so that Jewish worshippers or proselytes could come and exchange their money. But they were charging an exorbitant amount for the exchange of money. If you've traveled around the world, you know that there's always people at Borders willing to exchange your money because they're taking a commission. And they were taking a commission, they were taking a larger commission, and they were becoming rich off of worship. Beyond that, they were selling animals at exorbitant rate in this space, and they were crowding it, that whole space, with these animals that were for the sacrifice. And as well, they were being dishonest in their sales, they were price gouging on the price of animals, and they had filled up this whole space and made it just like any other religious market, where it was for them to, be, to get rich. So the problem is that the house of God was the place where God's glory was to be seen. And the anger of the Messiah was a necessary display of his holiness. He could not be the Messiah without anger. So here's Old Testament context. When the Messiah was to come, the prophecies about him not only did it include his love and his kindness, but it also included how he was going to come in judgment and in anger upon his people who had, not, who had left his word. So, for example, if you would go to John chapter 2, there is a necessary aspect of uh, his anger. This was actually the second time that Jesus had driven out these uh, money changers from the temple grounds. The first one was in John chapter 2. And in John chapter 2, he did it with a, a whip. Mark's account, right before his crucifixion, it doesn't mention him using a whip. And it says in John 2, when his disciples saw that, that it says that they remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So if you could go to the next one, Noah. So Psalms, they, they got that from Psalm 69, 9. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me this was a messianic psalm about the coming of the messiah he would be someone with a zeal for the glory of god in the temple also malachi 3 1 through 3 behold i send my messengers messenger this is another prophecy prophecy about the messiah he will prepare the way before me the lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple so the messenger was john the baptist the lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple necessarily means that he will have to be a Messiah who, has, who comes with a fire and zeal for the temple, for the place of God's worship that will refine or purify them. So this is to say that sin in the temple was a misuse of the temple. It was God had given them the temple to glorify him, but they were misusing it. Sin then, if you wonder what is sin, I think a a working definition for, for sin is sin is whenever the created being uses his free will to misuse God's gifts in creation. That is, God is the one who tells us for what purpose he created each thing he created. And when the dog barks, he glorifies God. And when the tree blooms, it glorifies God. And when the clouds thicken and pour their rain on the earth, they're glorifying God. They're doing what God has created them to do, and they are obeying him. But man, in our sin, take God's creation and we corrupt it, and that's what they were doing with the temple. They were using it for themselves and for their selfish motivations. Sin, then, is the abuse of the holy. It is something that engenders the wrath and anger of God and, therefore, must engender the anger of the Messiah. So rooted in this passage is the character of the Messiah, that he is not only this soft-speaking, blue-white-wearing, long-haired, baby-holding Jesus. He is a Jesus that also comes with judgment and such severe anger that we are a bit uncomfortable with it. So God gives value to his holiness. If you remember what I say, anger shows something about what we value. Jesus is showing the value the Messiah has for the holiness of God in his purposes when he shows his anger in this way. As an illustration, he shows us the fig tree. So the fig tree that he spoke to, he went to it, there was no fruit on it. And he said, no one will eat fruit from you again. Now, there's some questions, I think, that are natural about this. Why did he expect the fig tree to have fruit when it wasn't the season for fruit? It says right here in verse 13 that he came to it and he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Some commentators say, well, there should have been small figs on it. It wasn't the season for ripe figs, but it should have been something that they could have eat on, eaten on it. I don't think it's necessary. Jesus could have very well been using this tree without fruit just to give an illustration to say, My people are like this. They have leaves, they have a show of righteousness. You would think that there's righteousness there. They're doing sacrifices, and they're wearing all the, 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 the clothes, and they're looking Jewish but they have no fruit of righteousness. This is the point of what he's saying when he says there will be no more fruit on this tree again. So instead, this tree gives leaves but no fruit. You can read Jeremiah 8 sometime and you can see that in the Old Covenant, God talks about his people as a fig tree that gives no figs, that gives no fruit and how he's going to come with anger because of their unrighteousness. We're not going to read that today just for time. So that's the first thing. Jesus is showing his value for the holiness of God's purposes. Second thing, when he says, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, is he's showing his value for the good of his people. So, what is the purpose of the temple besides these sacrifices? And God meeting with his people, it was to a place to invite the nations to him. If you read Isaiah 56, I think I put that up there. No, if you go to the next one. Yeah, so the good of his people, next one. Okay, Isaiah 56, 6 through 8. I think this is worth reading. This shows us the purpose of the temple. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain. That's the mountain in Jerusalem where the temple is built. And give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he will gather the exiles of Israel. I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. So you can see the purpose of the temple, and especially that outer part of the temple, was that the nations could come, and they could learn of God, and he would gather them there. But because it was just a place now for business and for dishonest business, they had forced out the nations. Um, You consider the words of Jesus in Matthew 23. This was a time where he gave the Pharisees, you could say, a verbal tongue lashing, He says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. This is what Jesus was mad at the Pharisees for, because they shut the doors of heaven in people's faces. That is to say, he was mad and angry at the religious rulers, not only because of the holiness of God, but also because their disobedience was shutting down The people who he who he loved and wanted to gather away from him, and he could not, and because of that, they could not come and hear about him. I wonder if you can feel the value that Jesus is giving to you and me when he's angry. I gave that little illustration of me being angry if somebody comes in and mistreats my daughters. Can you feel God come, Jesus coming into the temple and defending you? because you're one of the nations. I'm one of the nations. And when he came in with anger, he came because he wanted us to come in. And he was not about to let the hypocrisy of religious rulers to stop that. So, is our anger good? Pass it through the test of the Messiah's anger. Is your anger for the glory of God and for the good of your people, of God's people? For example, if you're a skeptic, Today, you're, maybe you're a skeptic at heart. And many have rejected faith because of the abuse of religious leaders. Are you angry that preachers and priests would use ministry to get political power and to get rich and to abuse children and to sexually abuse their parishioners? Does that make you angry and say, I reject God because of those religious leaders? Jesus is as angry, let's say more angry, than you are about it. And he shows us that in the temple. God is angry at that too. What about us as a church? The church righteous should be angry at the church apostate. That is to say that when Luther called the Pope, the vicar of Satan, and all of the mothers got real tense, because what the Pope was doing at that time in Rome was shutting the door of heaven in the faces of people. By saying if you pay us money then we will forgive the sins of your dead grandparents. And they were using God's word to and what they were doing was giving a false report about God and his goodness to people. And they were the people who were supposed to be entrusted with the good message of God. So the church righteous must speak out about the church apostate. That is to say that We should be angry at Christian leaders who affirm homosexual lifestyle and who are misrepresenting the holiness of God and confusing people about the purpose for which God created them, their temple. They are encouraging young people to misuse themselves. The church should be angry about that, and they should speak about that, because God created each of his creation to be his temple where his Holy Spirit dwells. So then, what is the application of the Messiah's anger? This is the last point. Um, Israel is a warning to us, first of all. The New Testament tells us that Israel, we are not to think that that's them, the Jewish people, they dropped the ball, they were sinful, we are the church, we would never do that. The New Testament is clear, this is to be a warning to us, that as Followers of the Messiah do not think that we, because you're born into a Christian family or because you're in a Christian church that you may not fall from the grace of God in your greed the way that they did. However, if you are a child of God, do not confuse yourself as an object of God's wrath. Here is the greatest application I would want you to hear today. This wrath that Jesus poured out on this tree, this fig tree, when Peter came and saw it, and he says, Look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. This is an illustration of, the, of Jesus himself. Jesus took the place of that fig tree. That is to say, that on the cross, Jesus took all of the wrath that he was expressing in the temple that day, he expressed the wrath. But then he took it himself just days later. He took for himself that wrath that you and I deserve, that anger because we have transgressed the holiness of God and because we have, in our disobedience, also shut up the kingdom of God in people's faces. It was Jesus himself who took that. We've read three times in Mark already how he said that he was going to suffer and how he was going to, he says in chapter 10, he says that, He will be condemned, handed over to the Gentiles. He would be mocked and spit on and flogged and killed. What is that? That is him receiving anger. And it looks like the anger of the Jews and the Gentiles, but it was through them the anger of the Father on all sinfulness poured out on him. That is to say that Jesus stood in the place of sinful Israel and he stood in the place of you and me. When he took the wrath of God on the tree, and if you have come into Christ, do not confuse yourself with an object of God's wrath anymore because Jesus has already taken that, uh, that wrath for you and for me. Yes, we should have a fear of God to know that if we fall on the wrong side of his anger, then we are in a dangerous position. But if you have come into Christ, then you are safe eternally from the consequences of your sin because of his goodness. James 1 gives us further application warning. He says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, or slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So don't use Christ's righteous anger as a cloak for your anger problem. That is to say, Jesus had an advantage that you and I don't have, he was sinless. We should be very slow to anger, James tells us, because of our sin within us. A Christian parent, for example, should not be known as an angry parent and say, oh, it's just because I'm passionate about holiness and you didn't clean your room well. That's not what the the application here is. James tells us to be slow to anger because our anger is so quickly unrighteous and self-centered. And we're not so much angry about the holiness of God, we're angry about an inconvenience to us. So be very careful with the application. So how do we apply this lesson then? First, have compassion on your enemies. Those who hate Christians in the book of Revelation, it's the end of the year, and I've just finished reading Revelation 21 and 22 today to finish the Bible reading. And I'm reading about how the martyrs of the church and how God, the lamb, is going to come like a lion, and he's going to consume those who killed the saints. So if you have somebody that's mistreating you for being a Christian, Ian shared the story. He didn't share about massacres that have happened in Indonesia toward Chinese people and Chinese Christians and how that happened to his grandparents and a few generations before that. People that experience that, the people, the Lord in his sovereignty allows martyrdom It's a hard thing for us to understand. But he will not abide forever, that patience, and his wrath will come strong, the book of Revelation tells us, against those who persecute his people. Because God's anger is so um, expressed in the value that he has for his people that if somebody is mistreating you, you should feel great compassion for them. Because you are a child of God if you've believed on Jesus. Jesus. If they spit on you, if they hate you, if they curse you, if they say all manner of evil against you, they are in a dangerous position. And you should have compassion on them to explain that to them. Lastly, declare war this year 2024 on sin. But here's the thing, on your own sin. It's so we are so quick because of our selfishness and our self-righteousness, to want to speak out against social ills and problems and churches that are apostate that I mentioned earlier. But the place we should focus the war is on sin inside of our own hearts. That is to say, what sin have you harbored inside of your temple? The Bible tells us that in 1 Corinthians 6, That the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. And then in verse, let's say, 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We harbor sin in our own temple, and we give it safe haven, and we allow it to stay. And when we do that, we are not expressing the Messiah's anger toward our own sin, and we're not expressing the right value. We should have a passion for holiness, number one, and for God's people. So what is the sin that you have been holding on to in 2023? That 2024, can, you can declare anger at that thing. It's very easy in our marriages. We're angry at one another. Husband is angry at his wife. He can see all of her sins. Wife is angry at her husband. She can see all of his sins. We're angry at our children. The place to turn anger is toward your temple, the body that God has given you, and how you, not toward your body, but toward the sin that you've harbored in that temple, to get that out of there. So the biggest problem of Christian parents is that they are much more concerned with the sins of their children than they are, they, than they are their own sins. Now, the older your children get, the more that appears evident to you. And if our children are to see Christ in us, they should know that we are just as angry with sin in myself. Let's say more than I am with it when I see it in them. We can say the same thing for spouses. Verse 23 through 25 are what we call logions or phrases that were added by Mark to this passage because it goes with the theme of faith. But, so we're not going to dwell on verses 33 to 35, but he talks about unforgiveness. Um, and how so is there unforgiveness he says have faith in god are you harboring faithlessness lust sexual impure thoughts pornography pride laziness um, lying these are the kind of things that we are harboring inside of our temple when the holy spirit came and lived within me he is now to be the place that he abides so i i could say that my biggest anger or my hottest anger should be directed toward the sin that's in me that is to say that my biggest enemy is Aaron Bashor it's proud fleshly rebellious angry lustful power grabbing self-centered lazy that old Aaron that is to be that has been crucified is needs to be mortified the book of Romans tells us that old man who holds on so the problem is not that we get too angry, it's that our anger is directed toward the wrong thing. So direct your anger in 2024 toward the sin that continues in your own life. So who should care? So who should care about this? And anybody who is passionate about the holiness of God and the glory of God among the nations should care about the necessity, goodness, and application of anger, of the anger of the Messiah in our lives. What I would like for you to take away is that if you are a child of God, Jesus does not come at you with a whip. He took the whip for you, He came for that purpose. He comes to you and with you and in you as a co laborer to fight sin together with you. If you are not one of his, and you continue in doubt and in, and in rejection of the Messiah, don't take it as a light thing. It is a thing to be fearful of, because he comes in judgment the second time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross, that we see the anger of God poured out, not on me, who deserves it, but on Jesus. And we thank you that we have a God so holy that he would come close to us, And that when he comes close, he would show us a pure display of his anger. I pray that in each heart here, we would be supremely angry at sin that continues to abide in us. And that you would make of us a pure and holy people that show your glories to the nations around us. In Jesus' name, amen.